Our scripture lesson today is a parable from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, he said, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, I I pray that you speak through me and when and where necessary in spite of me. And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation in all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, in the time I have with you all, I would like to preach and teach on a sermon entitled, Be Humble. Be Humble. One of the great gifts of being on the staff at Westminster is that um, several Sundays, twice on a Sunday, I get to hear about the importance of using Pulitzer Prize winning authors in your sermon. Uh, And so I will follow suit when I um, make an allusion to Kendrick Lamar, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2018 uh, for his third album. So one of the early singles on this album uh, is called Humble. And so I was watching this video yesterday when I was unable to take a nap from our lock-in on Friday. And when I was watching the video for Kendrick Lamar's Humble, I just saw image after image come up. Um, somewhere of the opulent wealth that's often stereotypically associated with mainstream hip-hop. But then there was other images that juxtaposed, um, his sing- just juxtaposed those images of opulent wealth with faith and religion. There was the image of him uh, um, as part of the uh, Last Supper. There was an image of him where he looked as if he was praying in an empty temple. There were his signature corn rows on fire. And then there are other images that make the casual music video watcher pause to wonder, what exactly is this song about? In many ways, the video for Kendrick Lamar's Humble, whose lyrical instruction to be humble, are the inspiration for our, is the inspiration for our marquee, but it is also an artistic rendering of contrast and reversals. It is a video that holds space for the sacred space of the church and the sacred space of the hair salon in the black community. It's a video that echoes themes of righteousness and reality. You place these images with an infectious beat and lyrics that make you think, 
and lyrics that ask us to do something, to be humble, to sit down. While verses explain the artist's come up from syrup sandwiches to the desire for a woman with stretch marks. His lyrics, in much the tradition of other talented hip-hop artists, boast of his own status, but unlike that of many of his contemporaries, asks more for us, more introspection. It is as if Kendrick Lamar, and the song in particular, live in the tension of exaltation and humility. Like the music video, the parable this morning is in many ways a tale of contrast. Jesus perhaps wants to make it that much more clear now that his days are numbered, that the gospel he proclaims is one of reversals. Jesus directs a tale to us, to us the reader, that what we think we know is not quite so. Tax collectors and Pharisees are tropes in the Gospels, easily pinned against each other for a variety of lessons for us, the hearer. Perhaps we today, who often think we are righteous and need, are, are in need of being reminded that through the use of tropes, that Jesus was born, lived, died, and defeated death to show us that what we thought made sense, what we thought was right and good, may not be so. And our parable this morning might just be another gem in Luke and in the Gospels as a whole that reminds us, for you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. It is this Gospel of the absurd, upside-down, topsy-turvy grace, mercy, and love of the triune God that has power to both comfort and convict, to soothe and to shake our very souls. We begin with the contrast of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisees were religious leaders known by their strict adherence to the law. For the Pharisees, the ultimate goal was to be holy, a holiness that comes through separating oneself from what was unclean. In many ways, to be a Pharisee means that the people we meet in the temple could ease, uh, sorry, in many ways, to be a Pharisee is to be principally concerned with the doings of faith. If this is what it means to be a Pharisee, then the Pharisee we meet in this particular scripture could easily hold the accolade, Pharisee of the month. The Pharisee that Jesus described goes above and beyond. He has fasted more than what is required. The characterization of this exemplar Pharisee stands in contrast to the tax collector. The tax collector works for the Roman Empire. He has outsourced his collecting duty to others and is presumed by virtue of his, of his profession to be unjust. The disdain for tax collectors is not specific to just this Pharisee, but is also common that earlier in Luke, tax collectors are listed specifically among sinners as the object of Jesus' salvific purpose. It is through these tropes of the devout Pharisee and the draconian tax collector that Jesus uses to bring us into the story. A story about prayer, a story about justification, and a warning to the original listeners and us, their modern lineage, that perhaps our self-reliance that comes hauntingly close to self-righteousness is antithetical to the gospel Jesus came to proclaim. The contrast continues as the outward descriptions of the two men 
follow them inside the temple, as we are given an account of an instance in their prayer life. We encounter the Pharisee by himself, presumably in the stance of a devoted religious man. He prays to God by recounting not God's glory, but his own. It is as if the Pharisee is just running down a checklist of all the good and right things he is doing. As if adherence to the law were not enough, he makes sure to again separate himself from those for whom their profession and or livelihood are inherently sinful. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The story, then, is not just about two men, two contrasting figures, but about two men, perhaps in earshot or eyesight of each other, one presumably pious, one presumably profane. This tax collector, perhaps uncomfortable in the temple, finds himself in a place where the sacredness of space may spur on a sort of introspection. In this place, he prays. And he prays not in the posture common of the day with a full chest standing towards the heavens, arms lifted to receive the blessings of God. No, we meet him with fists fleeing towards his chest. And as the King James Version says, he would not so much as lift his eyes unto heaven. His acquisition of wealth and allegiance to the foreign powers of the day seemed to be of no good to him on this day when with the beating of his chest, the cowering of his head, his diverted eyes, he acknowledges that he is indeed a sinner. It is not just an acknowledgement of his identity, but a cry for help. The tax collector acknowledges that he is subject to a source higher than him, a source higher than the empire, and that source is God. And perhaps this higher source, perhaps this God to whom he is familiar with, may be displeased with him, a sinner, a player in an oppressive and exploitative system. Lord, have mercy. It is not the position of these two men that ensure God's justification or one's righteousness. The fear is that in elevating the tax collector, we shame the Pharisee. Shame is never the right response to God's people, and the Pharisee is one of God's people. We cannot, from the vantage point of the present, shame the past. If enlightenment precludes us from Pharisaic-like tendencies, as if the enlightenment precludes us from Pharisaic-like tendencies, it seems also that it would be against my own, and perhaps the church's own self-interest, to shame the Pharisee during stewardship season, where we want to encourage tithing. We want to encourage what it means to do faith well. It is not the actions of the Pharisee that are wrong. Earlier in the same gospel, Jesus praises the same practices of faithful living, fasting, and charity. The problem comes when our doing for God, for our faith, for our religious institution, is devoid of our dependence on God. If prayer is a form of worship and God is the object of our worship, of, of our worship then the issue is not with the actions of the Pharisee, but who the Pharisee attributes his actions to. 
In essence, his prayer is a prayer of I, and me, me, me. The prayer begins well, blessing God's name, but then it goes completely left. And rather than announcing the greatness of God, the prayer becomes about the Pharisee. Look at what I've done, look at me. The Pharisee only sees his own merit and does not account for God's mercy. We do not want to shame the Pharisee any more than that same Pharisee shames the tax collector. So perhaps we can find ourselves in him. Perhaps we can find ourselves in the Pharisee and the the hypocrisy in our tendency to praise our own self-sufficiency as if all our righteousness comes from our own doing and has nothing to do with what God has done, is doing, and will do in our lives. Perhaps you are doing it right now. You know that checklist of what makes someone a good Christian. Attend church every Sunday, even when it's raining, even when it's game five of the World Series. Stay awake during the sermon. Donate to charity, pledge a tithe, pray before meals, serve on a committee, maybe even serve on session. Perhaps you look around like I may or may not do during the uh, prayer of confession and think, wow, that person behind me really needs more than 45 seconds of silent confession. (laughs) Or maybe you look in and outside of this place and see those who are either, either are not beholden to the same checklist or have very few check marks. And then you start to think a certain way about what kind of person that makes them. Or maybe our station in life, our predominantly safe zip codes, and our comfortable standards of living make it so easy to forget that it is not our pay stub, but our shepherd who will supply our need. If, indeed, we are all sinners, saved by grace, then our perceived self-sufficiency and safety must be checked against our pride and our condemnation of others who do not do the stuff we do or live the life we live. I must admit that I, like the Pharisee, am quick to be able to name all the ways that the tax collector in this story is tied up in the corruption and oppression of the day. Everything about the profession of a tax collector in ancient Palestine seems to scream sinful. How can the tax collector so willingly adhere to being a power player in a political regime that relegates certain people to poverty and others to extreme wealth? How can he so easily abide by a system where alliances are more important than seeing the person next to you as your neighbor? However, Jesus does not contone the actions of the tax collector. No, Jesus commends his contrition. The tax collector sees his need for God. He looks at what he has done and is reminded that he is indeed dependent on God. But we hope that the story doesn't end there for the tax collector. That after the parable ends, something within the tax collector changes. Perhaps like his fellow tax collector Zacchaeus, who after an encounter with Jesus seeks to repair relationships with those he has acted unjustly toward by financial reparations. Or perhaps like Levi, this tax collector who gave it all up, seeing a disconnect between his work and his walk. Who knows? 
We only know that the tax collector is the one who walks away justified. But then I'd also like to believe that we don't know the whole story of the Pharisee. That there will be some situations in his life in which God's grace is so encompassing that contrition and humility are the only good and right response. Yesterday, as I was watching that Kendrick Lamar video for his song Humble, I ran across another video, because you know how YouTube works. <laughs> and it was a video for a song recorded by Tim McGraw entitled Humble and Kind. Of course, like any good streamer, I watched the video as the lyrics were a prescription of some of what it means to be humble and to be kind. And somewhere in these two videos, somewhere between the prophetic consciousness of a, Comp- of a Compton rapper and a Louisiana-bred optimism of a country singer, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be humble. We must live lives that remind us we are all God's beloved. And part of that means we are constantly called to remember that we are dependent on the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. And our acts of virtue and obedience, and obedience are responses to that. Humility is not ours to achieve by our own doing, but a faithful response to the God who calls us out of darkness and into marvelous light, who throws banquets for lost sons, and who visits tax collectors at their home. Perhaps humility is the only response to a God who turns systems upside down and who reverses our mental models of what is meaningful. Humility, then, is not a list of actions of do's and do-nots, but a spiritual posture, a prayer that, like God's mercies, is new every morning. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. In the name of the triune God who formed us, redeemed us, and calls us, amen.